Good evening. Why don't we call meeting order? I will start off with um, roll call. Green present. King present. Silver present. Townsend present. And note that the porter is absent. Start off, I'm going to give a brief summary of the uh, CPRB, and basically it was established as a tool to uh, allow citizens to uh, to share complaints or concerns they had related to treatment by our police officers. Uh, currently, the board, the process is if uh, there's a complaint, the uh, complaint is on file. The uh, police chief basically will look at all the information and he will make a decision as to whether treatment was fair or if there was an issue with unfair treatment. Uh, he writes his final report and that report is submitted to the police review board. Uh, we look at it. Uh, each, each of us have access to information which we look at all the information and then we as a board will basically uh, come to a decision and uh, write a written report and that is submitted to the city council. The positive thing about the process is that it's a vehicle in which the public can feel assured that all efforts are being made for fair treatment and to look at issues from all sides. Uh, having public, individuals from the public involved in the process is a great asset to assure that uh, a lot of people feel concerned about policing, uh, police policing themselves. Uh, this is not the issue because of this board. The fact that we are citizens and we are involved in the process does bring a totally different element that assures that all issues and all sides are being looked at fairly. Um, with that, I'd say, does any of the board members have anything they'd like to add to that? That's a good summary. Okay. There are um, some details and information also in the pamphlets if you haven't received at the front. Um, we'd encourage you to go ahead and review those. Okay. Okay. Uh, I will remind you that uh, this is a public forum, which is public recorded and being recorded for a rebroadcast on City Channel 4. At this point, I would uh, entertain a motion to accept correspondence or any documents that have been presented. So moved. Second. Okay, okay there's none. It's been moved and second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Against? The ayes have it. Okay. All right, now we're going to... Um, Move down to uh, introduction of our police chief, uh, Chief Hadley. We will turn it over to you. All right. Thank you very much. Can everybody hear me? All right. Um, this portion is just to kind of allow me to talk a little bit about the police department, uh, some of our latest initiatives, uh, kind of the state of the, the police department, if you will. Um, you're lucky you're getting that before the city council does, but we have a a councilman here, Susan Mims, and uh, Mazahar Sali. So, a couple council people here, and uh, and then we have uh, some folks from the um, 
Human Rights Commission and, and other folks from various committees with the city. So welcome everybody. Uh, I want to tell you about the, the, the structure of the police department itself. Some of you are familiar with it, some not so much. Uh, we have uh, 80, well, 82 sworn police officers, but we're swearing in four additional officers uh, this Wednesday at 1 o'clock at City Hall. So if you're interested in watching that, um, we'll be doing it then this Wednesday. But that'll take us to 86. Um, now, two of those positions are grant positions, so those will, will be gone through attrition in the next couple of years because they're grant funded. Um, but, but that's a, a fair amount of officers for a city of 74,000 folks. So uh, I will tell you with that number, though, it keeps us very busy. We rely heavily on mutual aid through the University of Iowa Police Department to assist us, uh, the Sheriff's Office and State Patrol, as well as surrounding agency. Uh, we have a very good working relationship with those agencies, and so we work as one, really. Uh, when we're busy, they come help us, and, and when they're busy, we go help them. Uh, so we can do more with, with a little less money, which is important to the taxpayers. Uh, for calls for service, uh, we run 70,000 calls for service per year. Uh, now, uh, this year we were 700 calls for service, that is in 17, 700 calls for service fewer than we were in 2016. So when you're talking those kind of numbers, it was fairly, uh, uh, this fairly much level. Uh, for crime, we only went up 1% in 2017 in overall crime, which is good. We, we don't like to see a big spike in crime. Uh, we love to see a reduction, but crime stats are somewhat like bell-bottom jeans. They, they fade in and out depending on what's going on with, with society and with reporting of those crimes. So when crime level stayed level, we, we, we like that. Uh, we certainly like to see a reduction, but, but again, it's better than, than raising. What we did see an improvement in in 2017 was a reduction in violent crime. If you look at just the FBI violent crime statistics, which is homicide, robbery, uh, forcible assault, sexual assault, and then aggravated assaults, we only had a reduction of 4%. But if you throw in other sex crimes like forcible fondling and some of those, we actually had a reduction of 12% for violent crime. Uh, and we really like to see a reduction in, in those numbers. It's one thing for your car get, to get broken into, but it's another thing when, you're, when your personal well-being is attacked. And so we, we certainly like to make sure that we're focusing on reduction in violent crime first and then the, the property crimes uh, uh, as well. Um, but that reduction in violent crime was big for us. Simultaneously, it's important for the police department to be fair in our enforcement and consistent in our enforcement. Uh, when we are making the attempts to reduce crime. That is, we have to get rid of the, the crime race association and connection. We have to make sure that we're um, being fair and, and um, there aren't disparity and disproportionality in our traffic stops when it comes to contacts with minorities. Uh, and we have to make sure that we're administering procedural justice out there. That is, we're being fair on the stops, we're listening to folks, we're being patient, and being respectful and treating people, all people, with dignity, no matter what the circumstances. When we fail to do that, that's where folks like the CPRB can come in handy. They can take a look at our incidents, our processes, um, our contacts with citizens and, and community members and, and uh, help guide us through those murky waters. Uh, our officers are human. They're not robots. They do make mistakes. But I will tell you, they're well-trained, and so their second nature is to rely on that training and be as professional as they can. 
and we expect them to do that and we hold them accountable for that. And the CPRB holds us accountable for that as well. So it's, it's very important uh, to have that relationship and that level of transparency in everything that we do. Um, uh, for, for numbers for crimes, we, we have about, when we're looking at total crimes, and this, this doesn't count the, the alcohol possessions and, and things of that nature, but we have about 4,500 crimes per year that we deal with. Um, so again, 70,000 calls for service. That is 70,000 times we're out responding to calls and stopping cars and maybe writing a parking ticket. But 4,500 of those are the, are the actual thefts, robberies, criminal mischiefs, arsons, whatever crimes there are, 4,500. And again, 1% raise in that. So we stayed fairly level throughout the year. Um, we do 12,000 traffic stops a year. It's a very high number. Uh, to give you sort of a barometer for that, the city of Davenport, which is much larger than us, does about 5,000 traffic stops per year. So we, we are very busy in stopping cars. I will tell you, my phone rings very often in Iowa City to report speeding vehicles, reckless vehicles, vehicles running stop signs. And I think it's because we have the university here, Kirkwood, we're pedestrian friendly, we, we encourage folks to be out on their bikes, and so we expect motorists to obey the laws and not hurt anybody. And that's why I, I believe because of the high amount of, of non-vehicular -tra traffic um, that we have, the, the pedestrians and bicyclists, the people do call that in. And so we're starting to focus heavily, and I will tell you the city council is uh, focused heavily on traffic safety, be it through engineering uh, issues uh, to, to help uh, slow drivers or enforcement efforts or technology, uh, we need to look at all of that to keep folks safe. And so we're working hand in hand with other departments in the city, uh, between our traffic engineers, the street department, at the guidance of the city council to make sure that we're on top of that. Uh, it's very important for everybody. Uh, we're working very hard to reduce the disproportionality minority contact. A show of hands, how many did not know that we measure ourselves for, for DMC, disproportionality minority contact, that you had no idea we were even doing that. Okay, so it is well known, we've done it for 15, 20 years, uh, but most recently in the um, 2010 through now, through 2018, uh, we look at that annually, we look at the numbers on, on disproportionality. Um, are there disparities? The answer is yes. Uh, do we have work to do? The answer is yes. Uh, but we strive to work very hard to keep that reduction going. And not just the amount of traffic stops, but the outcomes of the stops too. When we stop folks, um, are we asking more blacks to search their car than we are whites? Uh, are we um, writing more tickets to blacks than we are whites? Are we um, um, arresting more blacks than we are whites? And those measurements are also uh, counted as well. Um, once I stop that car, I call that low-hanging fruit. We need to be extremely fair and consistent. Now, I may not know what color a person is when I stop the car, and if you've ever done a ride-along with this, uh, or even without doing a ride-along, at night when you're following a car, try to figure out the race of the person driving, uh, the, the skin color of the person driving is not easy to do. Um, but by and large, um, just pure numbers, that, that should be a one-to-one -one ratio correct? It should be uh, no disparity, no dis disproportionality. And we haven't gotten there yet, but it's even easier for us to measure and control when we stop somebody to say, 
don't write somebody uh, of color more than you would uh, a white person, that's a pretty easy decision. And whether it's uh, you know an implicit bias thing, or the officer thinks that, that they're going to find more, that's a that's an uneducated uh, move on our part for that to happen. And we need to make sure that our officers are well trained and well educated to know that um, if you stop a person for their taillight and they're a person of color and you search their car more than you do a white person's, you're not going to find any more contraband than you do the white person. The stats are real clear, so stop doing it. Um, we've sent that message very strong to our officers and we're going to see improvements in that area. So it's important for us to, to while we're dealing with disproportionality in, in the name of fairness, that we concentrate on education and training for the officers. And uh, I'll tell you how important that is. We've gone from 200 hours total training in 2016 to over 1,100 hours in 2017 in that area since I've been here. And I got here in January of 17. So I put a lot of emphasis on that and we will continue to do that. Uh, then the second thing is uh, our deployment of resources. You know, we're not de deploying resources and, and trying to reduce crime uh, by targeting uh, certain communities or communities of color. We need to target crime trends and address the problem where it stands to reduce especially violent crime, as I mentioned. And the other thing that we're doing, too, is to um, improve our community outreach. Uh, community policing is uh, one of the pillars of the 21st century uh, policing that President Obama had put into place. And uh, that means getting out and, and earning the trust and, and the legitimacy of the community to let them know that, uh, as Sir Robert Peel said, uh, the public is the police and the police are the public. And so uh, we need to make sure that, that folks uh, appreciate what we do, understand what we do, respect what we do, and trust that we're doing the right thing. Um, and so continually contact, continual contact with the public in formal settings like our Citizens Police Academy and National Night Out and, and the, the Hate Crimes Public Forum we just did, and in informal um, as well. Again, that procedural justice. Every time we come into contact with folks, whether we're meeting them in the, in the ped mall or we're um, on a traffic stop with them, that they're treated with dignity and respect. So those are the things that we're working on uh, for the disproportionality portion. Um, with that, let me introduce Colin Fowler. So Officer Fowler is our um, new, I say new, he's not really new, it's been several months now, but downtown police officer. So uh, David Schwint was the officer before him. A lot of folks called him Officer Friendly, but he works uh, quite often with Angela from the, the downtown district and, uh, and some of the downtown businesses to improve quality of, of life downtown quality of um, uh, the business community downtown. And the idea is, is to, to enhance everybody's experience down here. Uh, I mentioned 70,000 calls for service. The downtown district is our number one calls for service. 12,000 calls for service each year for the downtown district. So compared to the second district is like 5,000 in certain neighborhoods. So that tells you how busy we are down here. When you're talking numbers that big, we need to focus on that because there's a lot of activity down here between residences, the university, the businesses, um, all, everything that's going on. So very important. So I'm going to give him uh, the, the floor here just a minute to talk a little bit about what he does and what some of his goals are. Thank you. I'm Colin Fowler. I uh, took over the liaison spot late last year from Officer Schwent. He's moved on to the Data Driven Justice Project. So 
He's still around, just not seen very often. Before I took over his position, I worked in the downtown on bike patrol for about five years. So you may have seen me down there. I often get recognized. Um, so when I took over for his position, I already had a, a good understanding of the issues that were downtown, uh, the people that were down there, the transients, the students, uh, and a lot of the business owners. So one of the fun and challenging parts of my job is I try and make uh, the downtown, specifically the north side, the Ped Mall area, uh, all those different groups of people trying to use the same footprint, everyone trying to get, get their own enjoyment out of it. So it's the challenging and it's fun. In the winter, a lot of my job shifts to homeless outreach. The homeless that we see downtown uh, during the warm months suddenly have to get inside at night, uh, otherwise it's dangerous. So I get to work with the, the homeless an awful lot. I inherited Officer Schwentz's nickname is the Sock Police. So I have a massive drawer full of warm socks and hats and scarves that I carry around with me when I'm on patrol and I give them out, which gets me some teasing from my coworkers, but I can take it, it's not too bad. It's really rewarding though, and also since I work with the homeless so much, I'm involved in the new uh, Housing First project that's gonna go up on Cross Park. I was, I think I recognize people from groundbreaking there, but that's really exciting to me, and since I've known the homeless for so long, uh, hopefully I can, the people that are most at risk and need the housing the most get to the top of the list. Uh, if you have any questions, I'm always downtown. You should have the bright yellow shirt, I look like a, a walking highlighter. And um, I also have a, cell, a city issued cell phone if you have any questions too. Let me add one thing to that too. One of the positions that I talked about that we're adding is going to be a, a, a downtown officer in the evening hours uh, because he takes off around five or six at night, as Schwint did. Um, and talking to the nighttime Mayor Angela and, and Nancy from the downtown district and some of the businesses and, and my officers, you know, we really need a, a downtown officer during those evening hours. So the city council supported us in uh, uh, hiring somebody to do that and also spend half their time out into the neighborhoods too. One of the problems with the, with the neighborhood response unit for loud party patrol, they call it, is uh, a timely response. So this officer would double as that as well um, if there's loud party calls going in, in the, uh, the neighborhood areas, which generally circled right around the downtown area uh, to the most, for the most part, then it'd be a, he'd be, he or she would be available for a quick response uh, and not delayed um, as we talk to our, some of our neighborhood um, folks in, in the neighborhood support division of the city. They said that's one of the biggest problems is delayed response to those calls. So we want to enhance that. So this person will be working hand in hand with Angela identifying issues and identifying ways that we can improve the quality of, of uh, the experience of the downtown area. We're excited about that position. And you should see that right around July. That's when we'll get that going. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, that's all we have. Well, I had a question. Uh, the substation we have that was created, uh, what's your feelings about that? Do you feel it's getting the results that we wanted? Yes, and thank you, because I was supposed to bring that up, but I forgot. <laughs> He's keeping me going. Um, how many in here uh, did not know that we had a substation in the southeast side over by the, the, where Kmart was located? Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's in that plaza near, is it Stuff, and, Stuff, et cetera. Stuff, et cetera, in that area right off Highway 6 uh, behind Taco Bell and stuff. So. The substation uh, has been in existence for uh, two or three years now, and we're using it more than we ever have. Uh, we've assigned Henry Harper, our community outreach assistant, who's a civilian position, 
but wears a uniform, drives a, a, one of the white pickup trucks that has markings on it. And he works hand in hand with the schools. He works hand in hand uh, with uh, community members, does a lot of public outreach, the formal programs we talked about. And he is uh, actually housed down there now because we wanted more presence down there. We also have a couple of our outreach police officers working out of there too. Uh, Officer Cash is out of there part-time and Officer Hayes is out of there full-time. Uh, now they're always out doing their duties as well, but that's their home base. Uh, we're going to continue to enhance use of that. As a matter of fact, for National Night Out this year, which is the first Tuesday in August, uh, we actually want to open the doors of the substation, have refre some refreshments, and make that a focal point for National Night Out. Um, I was there for a Crime Stoppers meeting the other day, and a gal needed assistance off to the east of us, and she ran over there for assistance, knowing that, that she could get help there. So important that people feel that there's uh, a place closer to them than having to come down here to, to deal with an issue. So uh, we like that spot. Uh, we think it's important. I will tell you, I would love to see a substation on the west side uh, to serve some folks over in the Mormon Trek area. Um, you know, the, these, these come at a cost, obviously. Uh, you know, I haven't approached city council yet. <laughs> but but we will certainly <laughs> we, we will certainly um, um, keep I have talked to some landlords over there and um, it's not impossible to do so um, but these can be very successful uh, we, we put a TV in the substation because every night between about 4.30 and 6 o'clock um, there's kids that come and hang out with, with some of the officers and Henry watch TV and just, just get to know them so that's the kind of environment that we want to create that 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 sense of you know um, fostering relationships with our with our youth and with with the neighborhoods, and I think something on the west side would be equally as important. So um, thanks for bringing that up, Orville, and, and uh, it's it's a those substations are great, and, and we want to continue to enhance that experience. Okay, thanks, Chief. Okay, next uh, we have a public discussion and community input, um, an opportunity for you to come and share your concerns and speak. Uh, we would ask that uh, when you do come up that first of all you sign in, uh, that you speak into the mic, and that you state your name for public record and recording. So at this point the microphone is open. Thank you all, being community volunteers, volunteering your time, and being on the Police Review Board. It's a pleasure having committed citizens like this, and I do appreciate that. Harry, will you state your name? You just did. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm Harry Olmstead. <laughs> um, I have a couple of concerns I want to uh, mention. Um, one of the things that's starting to happen in our community, and I kind of believe it's more student, if anybody, is cars blocking the, uh, what we call the curb ramps, 
those ransacked them off the sidewalk. And I ran to one this afternoon that was totally bust, so I had to go out on the street to get around it. I did report it. But the problem is, is it's only across the crosswalk, so the fine is only $25. The curb cuts are required by ADA, and we are working on compliance with that. But I'd like to see, and I'm going to be directing a uh, letter to the city council, uh, that we raise the rate uh, for those that are blocking curb cuts uh, so that it really has impact. Uh, $25, I don't think it's going to have much impact. And I think we need to let people know how important these are because if it was at night and with the poor light in this area, someone certainly gets hit, killed, whatever. So I would hope that you would join me in directing a correspondence to city council uh, asking them to consider raising the rate. The second issue that I want to address um, deals with safety, not only in our schools, but in our community. We're seeing violence happening in communities throughout the United States. Today, there was one in Canada with a van that uh, mowed over uh, 10 people. I think six were killed. Um, I want to know what is being done to prevent having these type of violent acts occurring in our schools and in our community. Chief? <laughs> sure. Um, well, let's talk about the school first. Uh, we're on a, a couple of different committees with the, with the uh, Iowa City Community School District to address uh, school violence. Uh, one of them is more reactive in nature. That is, if something were to go down, uh, what are the, what can they do about it? And so, uh, just as recently as Saturday, uh, where we had, um, uh, we, we taught Alice training. Um, that is the, the training to either run, fight, or hide uh, if an incident were to happen. And not just to the schools, but also invited the parents and, and students uh, voluntarily uh, we don't like to teach it right to the students. That can send the wrong message. Uh, it's really the school's job to direct their students. But we do train the faculty and staff uh, of the school district itself. And when I say that uh, countywide, the whole school district has been trained in that. And so they keep their thumbs on that, and, and we give them reassurance that uh, if it were to happen, they'll, their second nature will kick in. They'll know what to do to reduce the chance um, of uh, more deaths or more injuries. Uh, also, looking at the school buildings themselves, um, we have officers that are um, certified in crime prevention by environmental design. I don't know if you're involved in that or not at all, but we, we've got a few officers that, that are trained in that. And that's to look at the structure itself and make a determination of how we can make it safer. As simple as numbering the doors so when a, an event happens, we don't say, well, we're on the south side. Or a, a teacher has a south side. Well, what, what is the south side? What door six? door nine, door 10, you know, so it's clearly labeled. We all know which one we're talking about. And then also um, the systems inside the school, be it security, video or whatever, um, certainly have, have, you know, talked to them about, you know, best cases uh, for using those. 
So those systems are in place as well. Um, you know, anytime that the school has a, a problem with a student that they can't quite handle themselves, it's repetitive, it appears it could get violent, um, they don't hesitate to contact us. Uh, we respond and, uh, and, and assist them with that. You know, our goal is not to put students in prison. It's not to, um, you know, to have the, the school, the prison pipeline, if you will, is to keep everybody self, safe and get that student help. And so we can sometimes uh, do referrals, and the school does a great job with their counselors and their system as well. But, but we can help them with that, too, to keep everybody safe. Um, so those lines of communication are open, um, and we do the best we can with that. As far as the community itself, again, we focus on violent crime. Uh, the Pedmall shooting is a prime example. You know, um, that's something where, uh, you know, when that situation occurred, uh, a lot of the names involved weren't new to us. Um, we were familiar with it. Um, unfortunately, things unfolded downtown where you couldn't have picked a worse night or a worse area for that to happen if it were to happen. Um, but the success there is we had a very quick response. We made arrests that night, and those folks have been convicted and they're in prison that, that were held responsible. Uh, it's unfortunate that there were victims involved as well. Um, so we, we have increased our intelligence database and try to make sure that, that we, you know, if people are out doing those violent crimes we talked about, the aggravated assaults, the robberies, the, 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 the you know, murders, uh, we need to know who those folks are and uh, we need to do something about it. And we're enhancing those databases um, the best we can. And we do that so we can be, so we don't have to do a shotgun effect. That is stop everything moving and try to figure out who's doing something so communication and um, sharing of information, including with our federal and state partners and, and area agencies is so important. Um, that takes the who done it out of it and it lets us focus on uh, reducing crime through contact with those folks. And I have one more quick question. We know the city council has approved uh, the redevelopment of the Ped Mall, but one of the problems on the Ped Mall that I've noticed over the last several years is vehicles um, parking on the bed wall. Um, on Saturday, there was a glass cleaning company that parked right on the side of the library, and it was there three, four hours. Um, I hope there could be something done, because obviously, the way those vehicles is what's also taking its toll on the bed wall, and with new bed wall, coming, we certainly don't want to be Yeah, I think that's one of the goals for the new Ped Mall is to have that infrastructure a little stronger and updated um, so it can withstand the rigors of, of today's, you know, activities and vehicles versus uh, before. As far as the vehicles on the Ped Mall itself, unfortunately, sometimes it's necessary for maintenance and upkeep um, because you, you have to have uh, the vehicle or lifts or equipment to get the job done. It's kind of like when a, a large semi-truck blocks uh, Clinton Street when they're doing loading and unloading to get freight in. So these businesses in a pedestrian-only area won't survive if we don't allow some vehicle access uh, and, and goods to get to their stores in, a, in an efficient, safe way. Uh, it is up to the stores themselves, uh, the, the businesses themselves, to make sure that they're doing it as quickly as they can and as safely as they can. Uh, so we. We see problems in that area, we can certainly address those, but it does come with the fact of having a pedestrian mall, you're going to have the two pedestrians and vehicles intermix occasionally. 
Thank you very much. And we do appreciate our chief. He's on anniversary of one year, I believe. And we look forward to him continuing. Thank you. I have more questions, but I'll let somebody else have the floor. Thank you. Thanks, Harry. I'm Joe Coulter. I'm with the Human Rights Commission here in Iowa City. I'm also with the University of Iowa College of Public Health and College of Medicine. Um, as you know, uh, we're potentially facing an opioid epidemic here. Uh, it's not gotten uh, as bad as it has, uh, say, in Ohio and some other places. Uh, but the city, uh, and it very much involves the police department as well as other uh, community uh, functions as well as the county, um, about where are we with regard to naloxone training and access uh, to naloxone uh, to deal with uh, the emergency situations. Um, and what are the board as well as the chiefs perspectives on the progress or lack thereof that we're making on the access center uh, and what roles do you see uh, the police and especially you <laughs> uh, because one of the populations are the are the homeless as well as uh, other uh, groups uh, including the elderly uh, and uh, the contamination, if you will, with uh, fentanyl, and where is that coming from, and how is that getting into the to the medications? Uh, so there's a lot to talk about there, uh, and uh, I'd like to just ask the board if they've begun to kind of open up a little bit uh, to see what their role as the review board might be in terms of this expanded uh, functions of the police department as well as other aspects of the community. So you got a couple of questions there. Let's talk about the, the opiates and, and the uh, fentanyl issue and narcotics uh, issues in our city. Um, matter of fact, It'll help if I just throw a couple stats at you just to give you an understanding of, of uh, where those drug cases set. So <clears throat> drug violations last year, um, we had 367 drug cases last year. And the year before, that is 2016, 424. So we had a, a big reduction in, in the amount of drug cases, which is always a good thing. Equipment violations, which is paraphernalia, things of that nature, also went down from 174 in 2016 to 151 in 2017. Um, we are members of the uh, Johnson County Drug Task Force, and we have grant money in place to, to assist us in offsetting those costs. And so we work with the state departments of narcotic enforcement. We work with uh, all the other agencies that have somebody assigned to the Drug Task Force. Um, that that means we put a lot of efforts into combating uh, illicit drug use in our community. Um, 
and the opioids are, are absolutely at the top of that list. Uh, our most frequent thing is still methamphetamines. Uh, the, those are the things that we still struggle with. Labs have dropped down since we um, have put places or mechanisms in place. I say we, the, the state law, to reduce uh, the ability to, to buy the the uh, over-the-counter drugs that's used to make methamphetamine. So that's helped. So now, 80, 90 percent of it's being imported in uh, from from Mexico and and other uh, states. Um, so that being said, that's helped reduce making it, but it still exists and, and still causes a problem. Um, when we do run across somebody that has overdosed on an opiate, uh, painkillers, if you will, heroin, whatever the case is, um, Johnson County Ambulance carries uh, Narcan, the, the drug that counteracts that overdose and has a immediate uh, um, assistance for that person. Their general, we just did a study on this last year when I got here, the fire chief and I did at the request of the city council. And um, their response is quicker than ours when it comes to the medicals. They're usually getting that initial trip and so they're getting there, there faster. At that, well, we don't. And at that time, we evaluated whether we should carry it or not, along with the fire department, who also doesn't carry it. Um, and it was decided, but the, these, these things have a shelf life. And our concern was if we buy this stuff and it sits, uh, not being used, it doesn't do anybody any good. Johnson County Ambulance is just getting on faster than we are able to take care of that. Everything's a balance. So if we start to see that they're not getting there faster, that we could be on top of it faster and administer it, the stuff's easy to use. Um, so that wouldn't be a problem. But we want to make sure that we're carrying the right things uh, at the right time uh, for the right reasons and that it's going to be effective. Right now, that balance hasn't happened. Uh, but I will tell you, um, I've talked to the mayor personally about this, and, and it's one of his um, his big concerns is that when that balance needs to happen, we will certainly trigger that. Starting with the fire department, the, the fire chief said, you know, chief, we should carry it before you do. When we need to have it, we'll have it. And then the police officers themselves. So it's a good question. Fentanyl is a whole other issue. It's a very powerful drug. It is interlaced with with some of the drugs that we're seeing. We have had a couple cases of it on Eastern Iowa, not in the city here, but on, in the Eastern Iowa area. Um, so uh, when when somebody gets hold of that, it's, it has deadly effects because it's so powerful. And um, we have put precautions in place for our police officers so we don't get inadvertently exposed to it when we're dealing with drug cases. And uh, that's, that's very important to keep us safe as well. Um, and uh, you know when when it's when they're coming across it, we're sharing that instantly and and figuring out you know where it is and and you know if it's starting to creep into the area. Right now we've been pretty lucky. Um, same with opiate deaths. You know there, a few have occurred, but it's not the big spike that you're seeing in some of the other cities to the east and also some of the other states to the east, Ohio and and further east. It is out of control in those areas. We have a lot of it here, but it's not. It's not blown the lid off like, like some states, and so we continue to monitor that as well. What I would, I think, is very important is the the expense um, of incarcerating uh, individuals or sending them to the emergency room to the ER is much greater than what we would have to spend uh, for an access center to keep people out of jail 
and to give them the kind of treatment uh, to address their problems. Uh, where does the board and well, I, I can't really speak to that as a member of the Community Police Review Board. I don't really know if that's within our, um, our charter or purview, but in my other life as a Crisis Center board member, I do uh, support the Access Center. So um, I, I'm glad that they're you know, trying to have interventions before it goes to you know, incarceration or um, you know, emergency rooms. I think it's important to have those um, interventions in place. But in terms of the police board, I don't know if I can necessarily speak to that in this regard. I'd second uh, Ms. Green's statement there, and my previous experience before this too also allowed me to participate in drug court, which I thought was very valuable um, downtown as well, and I wish we'd incorporate more of those, but as far as our, our review board role, we're not in, in charge of overseeing the entire uh, police procedures or policies where um, oversight is limited just to the occasions where there's a complaint made, and then even in that case, it's just narrowly on those specific facts. Yeah, so. I can imagine a complaint saying, well, how come I didn't get sent to the access mm -hmm. center? They arrested me and threw me in jail. Yeah. But you, I would say basically, probably the only way that we would get involved in that is, you know, what you're talking about is something that if, if we get overwhelmed with it, you know, uh, our, our officers are human, and if they do make a mistake, and it, it could be because of training, then our responsibility would be, as we look at the information, to try to point that out and make recommendations to the city council to uh, put things in place to adequately address that need. So, look, I'm gonna have Officer Fowler talk a little bit about our crisis intervention techniques that we use, and that segues into the Access Center. I'll summarily tell you that we are all for an Access Center we're all for jail alternatives. Uh, if you talk to Lonnie Prokrovic, and I have lunch with him all the time, his jail is full of folks that shouldn't be there. <clears throat> and so we want to do everything we can to divert that. So well, we hear you loud and clear. I think our city council and our, our county supervisors and everybody that I've talked to is on the same page with that because uh, it's the right thing to do. And really, I don't want to say there's, you could use less of us at that point. <laughs> We're going to stay busy doing other things. But we should be doing things to reduce the, the, the crime that matters and, and get these other folks help that need it. So we, he's one of our instructors for crisis intervention. Yeah, so um, are you guys familiar with CIT? Have you heard it before? Anybody know? There's a short version, a long version. I'll give the medium version then. <coughs> so CIT started, I believe, um, down south, maybe Tennessee or Nashville, I can't remember one of those cities, but I was lucky enough to go to uh, Memphis. Memphis, thank you. I never did it. Um, Tennessee's in my brain today. I went to the 40-hour instructor training in San Antonio. And San Antonio right now is regarded as, as one of the, the leaders in CIT. So that was a fantastic training um, there, and I also got to go to some of the training in St. Louis. The whole idea about that is, is trying to have officers, like you both are speaking about, uh, find alternatives other than jail, especially when someone's, uh, the behavior that we're being called for as a result of mental health or chemical instead of deliberate defiance or deliberate criminality. So part of the four-hour training that we do here in this county for all the officers is to give them a body of knowledge about mental health and training on how to recognize the behaviors that are being called for and using something besides jail, maybe the hospital or the access center that comes online as an alternative. We're all aware that, at least I am, the FUSE study and how expensive high utilizers can be when they get into that rut of jail, ER, ambulance, court, all that, and how expensive it is. So 
a byproduct of CIT is that if you use these other alternatives to that system, you get a better outcome for the client and a better outcome for the community at a lower cost. So we're only two 40-hour sessions away from having every officer in Johnson County, that's every municipal PD, every sheriff's deputy, all those folks, only two more 40-hour classes away from having them all trained in that. The police academy has started training it uh, now, so once we get everybody trained that hasn't been in the police academy in a while, every officer that's going to be in Johnson County is going to be, have that training under their belt. You know, some, some municipalities uh, and jurisdictions just choose to have a CIT team that, okay, I'm an officer, I'm not trained, but I'll call an officer who is. We've chosen to train everybody. We want immediate response, we want knowledge, and again, supported by the city council, who's actually been hands-on with this and went down to, <coughs> some of them went down to San Antonio and, and uh, actually participated in that, in that training. So there's a lot of buy-in. We're on the same page. It's an excellent question, and we hope to see not hope, we will see some results in that. It's gonna, there's money involved, it's gonna take time. But until then, at least we're trained up and we can start doing the right thing early on. And hopefully the, the <coughs> facilities and the, the actual infrastructure follows eventually. Great question. community member. Uh, I also volunteer with a group that um, is called the Black Voices Project. And uh, one of the areas that the, uh, the groups are concerned with is actually uh, reestablishing or furthering trust between authorities, specifically the police and youth of color. Um, so that's kind of the background with which I'm coming to this question. Um, I also attended the Hate Crimes Forum uh, not too long ago. And during the discussion afterwards, there some community members talked about the fact that on the one hand, if you see something, say something, tends to be the sort of rule of thumb. However, there are many community members who have been victimized who, because the trust is not there, do not feel willing to come forward to talk about their trauma. Um, and so I was wondering, in light of some of the um, literature that I was looking at earlier about formal complaints that come to the board. Is there a mechanism in place, and it's a tough question I recognize, is there a mechanism in place um, through the police department or other law enforcement agencies to collect data on informal complaints, things that are not actually making it to the board or not making it onto paper, but really are sort of things that perhaps police officers who are in the neighborhoods are hearing about a colleague that the neighborhood is talking about? Or are there ways in which you can collect that informal, more anecdotal, but oftentimes extremely important preventative data so that it ends up that a problem is perhaps addressed before it reaches the board? So, so yeah, the, the, the formal <laughs> complaints are fairly easy to track because those are documented. Um, you know, we try to make it as easy as we can for folks to bring uh, improper conduct or alleged uh, uh, wrongdoings on our officers' part to our attention. We uh, recently, through using a racial, equi racial equity toolkit project last year, started a uh, system online so someone can just jump online and you can commend an officer, but you can also complain about an officer 
and so that way it's a click of a button and you don't have to uh, to physically come in and you know like you said sometimes the police department's the last place somebody wants to be but you can still lodge the complaint online you can do it by phone um, you know however you can get that you could write us a letter however you can get that information to us we want to make it as easy as possible and um, and and less intrusive I can't get people to apply for jobs because if they can't do it online they don't want to do it so we know where technology lies and so we've tried to match those two together uh, we have policies in place uh, for officers if they get a in passing in a neighborhood saying you know I, I don't know about that Jody Matherly guy you need to watch him and and there's something going on with him and they get any information <laughs> that you know alleges that I might be uh, doing something wrong they have to report that to us the officer does it's not anecdotal at all it's not just in passing and so we also have a early warning systems um, policy in place if our own officers are spotting a problem with an officer um, they're acting a little out of character they see something that, that shouldn't have happened they are forced by rule to report that as well so we're by rule have to police each other and um, we have to report you know issues that are going on even if it's just in passing with the community and that allows us to vet the officer now, I've been doing this 35 years I will tell you that police officers don't like to work with other police officers who aren't doing their job who are dishonest or who are abusive they don't like it they didn't get into this business to be that way they didn't get into to be hated they didn't get to get into this job to be disliked they did it to help the community they certainly didn't do it for pay uh, we don't get rich but but it is a, a you know a good living but they did it because they want to be community oriented and they want to help people period and so you know people talk about the thin blue line and and how officers you know will fail to report um, issues with other officers and I will tell you and I've worked for many agencies in many capacities that couldn't be farther from the truth as a chief I don't let those folks work for me and officers do not want their peers to to be that and they will be the first one and even our union our police union will say we'll be the first one to say if the person shouldn't be a cop we don't want them to be a cop so I will assure you that this agency is very well versed we have good policy in place and good communication with our community to weed those folks out um, we've got great people people make mistakes if it's a mistake of the head I can correct that but if it's a mistake of the heart they got to find another place to work any other questions Okay, well, if there. I'll make a statement a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I'm going to question. Um, I'm Angela Winnie with the downtown district, and I also uh, manage a business downtown during the day. Um, so I have a twofold statement that I want to make because I think you probably only hear complaints or negative feedback. And I, um, as a representative of the downtown businesses at night, um, I would say the feedback in the last six to eight months um, as I've been in this position as nighttime mayor um, has been extremely positive. Not everything, and it's not a perfect relationship between the police department and our nighttime businesses, uh, but the perception of, of the relationship that I think Chief Matherly and the nighttime officers have tried to develop with the downtown businesses has improved significantly, uh, which I think is really important. Um, even the last few weekends as the weather's gotten nicer and I'm out and about talking to various um, bar owners, bar managers, restaurant owners, 
Um, the feedback is that they feel like the police are trying to be more part of the downtown community rather than just enforcing, which I think is what the police department is trying to do. Um, and then as a daytime business manager down here, um, we developed a really great relationship with Officer, Officer Schwint and now with Officer Fowler. And it is a, such a positive relationship that I'm really excited for this evening uh, nighttime officer position to be created. Um, officer Fowler creates a sense of security downtown with a lot of the daytime businesses that they know that he'll respond immediately if they have a question or a concern. Um, and we talk about this downtown amongst the businesses and I think just as a person enjoying downtown, when Officer Fowler is off doing training or isn't around downtown, it's a noticeable difference um, in the Pet Mall, I think, for how safe people feel um, and how easily they think you know an issue can be addressed. So. Um, we're really excited to have the evening officer position. Um, the nighttime businesses really appreciate this sense of working with the police department instead of being enforced, you know, having um, certain things enforced within their businesses. So <coughs> it's been an extremely positive feedback, uh, which is great for everyone, I think. So just wanted to make that statement. Thank you. And while you're standing there, Angela, uh, this nighttime mayor's position isn't something that, that we came up with, we actually, I say we, the city and the downtown district, uh, modeled this after similar uh, programs elsewhere. But what a great idea to have a liaison that's eyes and ears and, and feet on the ground, especially during those evening hours, and, and have a voice and a good liaison and connection for the police department and, and with bars themselves and business owners themselves and each other. So uh, it's, it's very valuable. And uh, I think you're going to see with a, a nighttime officer down here, you're going to see her position and this additional position with the police department. Uh, it's going to flourish, and I think it's going to, you're going to find that it's going to be very valuable as a team. So we're looking forward to that, too. Uh, one other thing, uh, one of the great things that Chief Matherly was a part of uh, was working with the UIDPS in the SHOUT program. And I just have to speak to it because this past weekend, um, I had a, a grad student job shadow me um, from the harm reduction program at the University of Iowa. And speaking to students just out in the streets and asking for their feedback about what they thought of Shout. And it all goes to this um, helping people instead of jailing people idea and concept, even amongst the students, has made a, a significantly positive impact, I think, on their perception between the police department and the university DPS from what it used to be even a year ago. And um, for those of you who don't know what the Shout program is, students helping out. Um, and it is kind of owned and driven by the University of Iowa with um, kind of help and implementation between, with the university, or sorry, with the Iowa City Police Department, the downtown district. Um, and it is a, a layer of, of help and protection for those who are downtown and on campus um, before businesses or those who feel unsafe call the police department, they can call shout um, and they can get, um, like a ride home or someone to walk them home if they feel unsafe leaving the library. Um, and even if it's like a Friday night and you're intoxicated and you're a community member, and you get separated from your friends and you don't have a safe way of finding your way home or don't know how to, uh, Shout can help you instead of a police officer having to take you to jail. So it's a great program for our entire community. And kudos to Director Scott Beckner at the university for um, getting that up and running. And he, he's got a model that says, you know, if we're going to fight crime, let's take the victims out of the mix. And so these students are there to say, hey, 
you know, you're walking alone. Yeah, well, I got separated from my group. Let us help you. Let's take that victim out of the mix. And um, it's so important. It also is a tool for the business owners to say, I got a person that probably shouldn't be here. Well, you know, the back half of our car, unfortunately, is not a taxi, and the front side is, is uh, the police car. Um, and so this gives us a tool, and the officers absolutely love it because it gives them an alternative, a diversion program to get that person home safely, and then they can go out and, and do their job. Uh, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. And I think you're going to see a lot of innovative programs like that. <coughs> Beckner's pretty good at that stuff. And uh, married with our department in downtown, uh, what, a, what a great program. So, yeah. Thank thanks, you. Angela. Thank you. At this point, does any board members have anything they'd like to share? Chris, Terry, staff, you guys have anything you'd like to share? Okay, well, just kind of in, in, in closing, I would just like to say that we think about police force in terms of they, them, you know, and basically. Where it's really at is they're all about to protect and serve. But I think basically as a community and as a group, we can contribute to that simply by thinking in terms of our we and things that we can do to help and to get involved. Uh, our city, this is our city. We have a beautiful city, but we also have a responsibility to make it better. So if another Input, I would entertain a motion to adjourn. So move. Motion. Okay. A second. <laughs> move and second. All those in favor? Aye. We're adjourned and thank you for coming.